You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Uh, Asalaamu Alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to another breakfast show. You're listening to myself, Tuki Ramadan, and also here in the studio with me is Imam Jalis Khan here in the studio, Voice of Islam. So, as you know, the agenda of the show... Um, we go through some of the headlines which is happening around the world and when then we go into some of our main topics so uh this morning for you um we're going to be starting our first segment earlier we're going to be starting at 7:15 um and we're looking at the whole issue between uh you know the Palestinians they tell of fears for future as war destroys Gaza and i mean this is something which is ongoing uh we've we've been addressing this since the very inception of of this uh when this uh, war began and we've been covering it and i i think definitely we do need to highlight um we need to highlight some of the humanity humanitarian work which is needed there um you know so the you know so the the aid that they need they it's a very difficult situation and um i think the, the the what we're doing um there's still more should be done and uh, you know that's why you've seen on the breakfast show uh, we've been covering this um on on our da- daily shows and this it's become uh, one of our main topics so that we'll be discussing that we we have a good lineup of experts as well would we'll be listening to Aslam Daud would we'll be listening to Dr Jill Stan and would we'll be listening to Zora uh Korashi so we'll be listening to three of these uh guests that will be coming on and uh the second segment which will be starting at 15 will be looking at how can i be successful in life so what is the key so that is the topic we'll be listening to we'll be listening to Hans uh, Schumann will be listening to Vanessa King so these two um these two guests will be joining us for that particular show uh so that is the lineup for for us today and yeah do let us know do give us a call on 0286877878 that's the number to call if you do want to get in touch with us or you can tweet to us at voice of islam uk or for more information you can go on our website on www.voiceofislam.co.uk so uh, let, let's start off with the, with the weather uh, imam jalis if i can come to you for that yes yes of course um, not too bad today is it uh, imam tuki so it's, it's all right it's not, it's not too cold not too mm. too bad um, yeah just jumping into the into, into the weather now uh, today we'll see an early rain um clear the southeast to leave a mild day with variable cloud bright spells and a few isolated light showers in places turning brighter in the far south and north as for tonight this evening we'll see lengthy clear spells in the far north south and west cloud thickening from the west overnight bringing in a few spots of rain but staying largely clear in the southeast as for saturday mist and fog struggling to lift in western and northern areas tomorrow morning a band of rain moving in from the west later on becoming widespread by the evening dry in the southeast however and towards sunday to tuesday on tuesday rain will be slow to clear northern wales central and southern eastern england 
uh, a cloudy start elsewhere, but turning brighter for many, except Western Scotland, Wales and southwestern England as well. Cloudy with showers at first on Monday, uh, these clearing as it turns brighter in the afternoon, breezy and unsettled with a band of cloud and spells of rain on Tuesday. So fairly cloudy and rainy, a lot of cloud and rain has been talked about right now. Um, Brightening up your day on Friday, I guess. I don't know what else to say. Um, I don't know how else to cheer up up our listeners in the morning, I guess. I don't know. How's how's your... um Typical mornings, like um, typical mornings are they're all right. Um, can't complain. Wake up uh, roughly nine ten ish. Uh, get some breakfast and mm. off to off to Morden. Off to off to work. Huh? Like yeah. the the long drive. Yeah, long drive. This is something that you don't get in Scotland. So in Scotland, you would travel uh, well. Um, ten miles could be covered in ten minutes, fifteen twenty minutes. Mm. But in London, this is. I, th- oh, I, th- yeah. I yeah. think this is. I think this is unique to London. If anything, um, yeah. that ten miles. You'd be lucky to cover it within fifty minutes. So, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's <laughs> roughly that's how yeah, much it would, yeah. it would take. So, yeah. um, I mean, yeah. the, the the things they've introduced new new things into into London. You've got the e bikes, the e scooters. Yeah. Um, I think that sort of have made a difference. Um, I started using them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes if you do need to maybe get to a particular destination, it's a two three miles. Mm-hmm. And there's not enough time. Just mm-hmm. jump, hop on a e-bike, and uh, you know, make, make your make your way to that. Yeah. Uh, so the, the, I mean, there's ways um, mm-hmm. uh, which which does help, but uh, it, that is that I guess that's unique to London itself. Yeah. Um, it, you know, with within uh, the morning shows, we like to cover some of the news with regards to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community course, as well. Um, and just very recently, on the uh, 11th of February. Uh, 2024. I don't know if you know, uh, Brother Jalis, a group of new converts um, and uh, Ahmadi members from Belgium. They had their honor of meeting yeah. His Holiness. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, in actual fact, on uh, over on the weekend, um, it was on Saturday actually. Uh, they held a uh, big uh, event as well, which at the at the opening of the mosque. Uh, at, at our London Mosque, the Fuzzle Mosque, mm-hmm. um, in uh, in Gresnell Road. So these members came to that as well to see the exhibition. Um, so yeah, with regards to this uh, sitting, um, you know, His Holiness had the chance to meet with these new converts, and uh, a lot of them um, had questions to His Holiness. Um, you know, for example, Doctor. Dr. Rinaud, who was a new convert, he shared a story of how over 10 months ago he came across the motto of the Hamdiya Muslim community and felt the overwhelming need to attend the local mosque and meet the missionary there. And uh, our main motto of the community is yeah. love for all, hatred for none. And uh, this motto itself, this was... This uh, it was um, said by the third caliph of the Amdi Muslim Muti, Hazrat Musa Nasir Ahmed, may Allah the Almighty have uh, mercy on him. Mm. Um, and it's it's been it's been going on ever since. You'll yeah. see it at our annual conventions or our peace symposium. MPs, dignitaries will often mention it 
that your motto is love for all hatred for none mm-hmm. and uh, that's exactly that, that's exactly what it is and yeah. uh, it's it's so amazing that you know there people or uh, members coming into the fold of Ahmadiyat mm-hmm. um just by you know looking at the motto of the community yeah. uh, they felt the need that you know to come into the community and learn more yeah. about the com- community so that itself is is very beautiful yeah and uh, i would urge the listeners as well to read more on this on the weekly alhakam uh you can go on uh, on the uh, youtube channel mta news to see the snippets of these virtual meetings as well uh, so yeah do do check that out mm-hmm. um that's that's something for our listeners um yeah so any anything else jalis uh, any any other um news that you yeah. came across of course uh, this might be a good segue into our uh, next well, uh, on our first topic anyway but um recently uh, Jen Kitchen in specific she's an MP who recently won the vote um if I'm not mistaken for Wellingborough in the by election um this is amazing this is um this is you know like uh, un- more or less unprecedented but uh, looking at the tide it seems like it ha- is been turning against the Tories against the conservatives and this is a seat for the Labour party um and uh, she said in specific that her voters so those some of the voters that she spoke to this was the first time they were voting for labor mm. so this is a definite turn around from the conservative norm um in Wellingborough this is actually really interesting because there is a ceasefire vote looming around the corner and this is putting a little bit of pressure on uh, Sir Keir Starmer um the, the 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 leader of the Labour Party um as he has been uh, kind of been put under pressure regarding um the ceasefire uh, however the, the the speculation and even um the, the, there is belief that there, there there might be some sort of turnaround in his uh, ideals as well and he might actually go for a ceasefire as well mm. i don't know if you remember in november there was a vote and uh, the um, labor party actually um, abstained and uh, what happened was uh, the, the labor party they split there was a massive split in the labor party but now it seems that he is warming up towards a ceasefire however it's not an immediate ceasefire as um this this phrase immediate ceasefire is ringing bells across the world um but this is not the case for um uh, Keir Starmer at the moment but there is some sort of uh Uh, ceasefire type of notion coming across from okay. the Labour Party, so hopefully we can we can see an uh, an immediate ceasefire. Absolutely, absolutely. And as you mentioned, it's a beautiful segue into the first segment. Um, so the right now, more than twenty four thousand nine hundred people currently have been killed in Gaza, and since Israel it launched its response uh, to the seventh of October Hamas attacks, according to the Hamas-run health minister. ministry and the Hamas attack in Israel it's killed around 1300 people most of them civilians and so 240 hostages taken back to Gaza so Israel says its air and ground operation in Gaza is aimed at destroying Hamas the majority of Gaza 2.3 million people are displaced and fight daily to find food drink and medicine so we did have the chance to interview um Dr Jill uh Stein um for 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 this particular segment so without further ado uh, let's listen to what she has to say 
Dr. Jill Stein is a Harvard-educated doctor, a pioneering environmental health advocate, and an organizer for people, planet, and peace. It's a pleasure to find that she's on the line with us. Dr. Stein, thank you very much for coming on to speak to us. Tell me, for the benefit of our listeners, can you inform us as to whether this conflict that is taking place in the Middle East, in your view, began on October the 7th? That is a common misconception. October the 7th was just sort of the latest chapter in a uh, terrible conflict, uh, war, periodically, uh, that's been going on really since uh, 1948 with the founding of the State of Israel and even uh, prior to that. But there have been, you know, tens upon tens of thousands of lives lost uh, and we know that in 1948, there was a mass uh, ethnic cleansing uh, referred to as the Nakba when somewhere around, what was it, 700,000 uh, plus uh, people were forcibly displaced, you know, and there were tens of thousands of deaths uh, of Palestinians at that time, too. So it is entirely... Uh, what should I say, a, a propaganda campaign to focus simply on the latest chapter of this long and tragic uh, ongoing war that must really be, um, this is really a, a propaganda campaign that attempts to uh, uh, tell people that this is a new problem that began with the actions of Hamas. Hamas, you know, is in fact a um, response to an ongoing crisis that really began uh, long before. And this crisis was certainly aggravated with the complete uh, blockade of Gaza back in 2008. So this, this conflict has been long in building, and the effort to entirely blame it on uh, Hamas is misguided and um, uh, misleading. Mm. Now, some would attribute the uh, root of this conflict to be Zionism, and some Jews themselves are being called a self-hating Jew when rejecting Zionism. Is rejecting Zionism anti-Jewish? I think that, too, is a terrible uh, misconception that poorly serves the Jewish people, um, Zionism has been controversial since its very first beginnings in the late uh, 1800s. Zionism is most definitely not Judaism, and Zionism has been extremely controversial within Judaism. And if one simply listens to the very traditional, uh, super-Orthodox Jewish rabbis, they are very uh, opposed to Zionism, and they feel that Zionism <clears throat> violates basic tenets of the Jewish uh, religion. That is, you know, the essential uh, Ten Commandments they feel are violated by uh, Zionism. Uh, when uh, a friend of mine asked one of these rabbis, well, what exactly is being violated uh, by this, the rabbi answered, the commandment, thou shall not kill and thou shall not steal, uh, meaning finally that, that Zionism is a, um, 
you know, it is really a, uh, a, a very, a violation of basic Jewish values and principle, the idea that you can come in and see someone else's land and drive them off their land and, you know, do whatever else to them you like. I mean, this is completely, what we are seeing in Gaza right now is, to my mind, this is a real insult to the Jewish people to yeah. say that uh, anti, to be anti-genocide is to be anti-Jewish. You know, that's crazy. And that essentially uh, says that uh, Judaism is is a disgrace and is okay with genocide. Mm. In my mind, I was raised as a Jew to believe that the Holocaust would never happen again. Uh, but basically, we are seeing those principles uh, of just uh, wanton uh, killing and murder. We're seeing that roll out now right before our very eyes. And this is I'm glad to say this has mobilized so much of the grassroots uh, Jewish community in opposition to say this is not in our name. <laughs> this is not okay. Why do you think if there is this feeling among Orthodox Jews against Zionism, why do you think it's taken such a complete hold of vast swathes of, uh, of Jewish thought and, and Judaism in general? Mm-hmm. You know, I think the whole situation is very, uh, um, uh, it is full of enormous stress and trauma. And the experience of the Jews over the last several centuries in Europe, you know, was horrific. And um, many Jews then came to Israel with the expectation that uh, this would be, um, you know, the land of milk and honey, you know, that that this would be a safe place, and they carried with them the trauma of the pogroms and and the Holocaust. And so that expectation then, you know, I think landed in Israel, uh, where unfortunately now uh, the Zionists are in the position of doing what was done to them, they are now doing to the Palestinians. And this is, you know, it's a really sad and terrible uh, situation that becomes sort of an eye for an eye, uh, but it's now being uh, inflicted on people who did not, you know, who did not kill and murder Jews, you know, in the pogroms in Europe and in the European Holocaust. The agony from that experience then got brought over uh, to uh, to Palestine and to the new founding of Israel. So, you know, it see this happen all the time, you know, and this is what uh, Gandhi, you know, uh, refers to as an eye for an eye until we're all blind. You mm-hmm. have this just uh, uh, a, a, a sort of vengeance takes on a life of its own. It's yeah. very regrettable, but it's misplaced. It's yes. misplaced and you cannot justify uh, one human rights abuse by the fact that you have received human rights abuse. Mm-hmm. That's not okay. You know, and I think yeah. it's very important for international law to prevail here. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, we must respect uh, the rights of the Palestinians and, and the people of Gaza who have a right to their land, their country, uh, their safety and security. Mm. I see you're a presidential candidate uh, f- uh, for the forthcoming uh, U.S. elections uh, representing the Green Party. What consequences has this conflict had on hindering the efforts of tackling our climate emergency? And, and what are your goals for climate action? 
Great. Um, so the relationship between uh, war and conflict and the environment is huge. And it's very important that we not enter into war and conflict and think that there won't be a huge price paid for that. Uh, in fact, the U.S. military is the largest single organization uh, across the whole world in terms of consuming uh, fossil fuels and producing greenhouse gases. If the U.S. military was a nation, it would rank number 47 among countries, uh, you know, so uh, above the, the midline, you know, it would be in the higher half of, uh, of carbon emitters among countries. Mm. So there are environmental consequences uh, to conflict. And, you know, just to look at uh, in the first 100 days of the uh, Israel's war on Gaza, in the first 100 days, there were something like 30,000 bombs that were dropped. It was something like six times, maybe even more than that, the number of bombs that were dropped in six years uh, on Iraq. So, you know, this is physically devastating uh, to the environment, to the water supplies, to the uh, air quality and so on. You know, so war is a terrible thing for the environment. And related to that, it very much pollutes the water that we need. You know, we were looking at the uh, Israeli Defense Forces flooding the tunnels uh, with salt water, which would put at risk the aquifer uh, under uh, Gaza, uh, perhaps under Palestine as well. Um, and also potentially because of the use of salt water uh, more broadly uh, above ground, also has the potential to permanently kill uh, the fertility of the soil as well. So war is a very dangerous thing. It not only hurts innocent people, it hurts people, uh, you know, who are far removed from, from the conflict and can have absolutely unpredictable and unintended consequences. We know that Israel is a nuclear power. Um, we know that, that it has nuclear weapons. And uh, we know that Iran has uh, a mutual defense treaty with Russia, also has nuclear weapons. So for the conflict in Gaza to be potentially spreading uh, across the Middle East, which the U.S. is actively doing and Israel is doing by bombing uh, many of the neighboring countries, uh, you know, including Yemen, uh, especially uh you know, and, and going after Iranians outside of Iran, you know, this just has the makings of a conflict that could mushroom out of control uh, in the blink of an eye. And were it to become a nuclear conflict, it's important for people to remember nuclear conflicts impact the whole world. Even if they're just happening, you know, uh, in, in one limited place, uh, the consequences, so-called nuclear winter, travels all around the world. It goes into the atmosphere. If enough uh, nuclear weapons are, are detonated, that, that wrecks uh, food production for the whole world and could threaten you know, the survival of uh, humanity on the planet. So we need to all think of ourselves at risk whenever, um, uh, whenever reckless uh, conflicts are being undertaken, as they are right now, uh, 
by this war on Gaza mm. and its expansion mm. uh, across the Middle East. Yeah. Um, uh, I didn't know Iran had a mutual uh, defense treaty with uh, Russia, but that's news to me. Thanks very much for letting us know that. You know, it, it, very few people know about this, uh-huh. and I've only seen mm-hmm. one or two references to it. So, you know, it, it bears con- confirming, but right. that is my understanding. Uh, and this took place maybe three weeks ago uh-huh. and was really not given uh, wide recognition. Right. Um, as a former doctor um, and uh, viewing the humanitarian crisis unfold where healthcare institutions are being destroyed, what has been the failure of the U.S. government and Israel at what is, uh, at what is the solution to all this? Oh, there's been a complete abdication of uh, just rational behavior here. Um, And I would certainly, you know, I I think the U.S. has been extremely irresponsible and has essentially partnered with Israel in the conduct of a genocide here. Mm. Um, The U.S. has enabled this. Uh, 80%, I read the other day, 80% of the weapons that are being used against Gaza are from the U.S., the U.S. could stop this in the blink of an eye, uh, in the same way that Ronald Reagan uh, stopped the offenses of uh, Israel uh, into Lebanon uh, back, you know, when was it? Uh, I don't have the exact date, but Reagan interrupted. I believe so, uh-huh. where Reagan made a phone call uh, to the prime minister of Israel and said, you know, it's over. End it. Bring your troops home. And, and they did, you know, and the U.S. has had that kind of influence, I think, even more so now um, because Israel is uh, so uh, very much now at risk and has really mobilized its neighbors against us, against it. Mm. And uh, Egypt is now, you know, uh, uh, threatening to uh, suspend its uh, peace treaty uh, with Israel based on uh, what's going on at the uh, uh, at, at in Rafa right now? Um, you know, so it's it's entirely possible for the United States to assert its influence just mm-hmm. with a call, but certainly it can do much more than that. The U.S. can say, you know, uh, we are not going to continue providing the weapons for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the U.S. should certainly not. I mean, to me, it's an absolute abdication of their responsibility that that the Senate just voted with the exception, I think, of only two senators. Mm -hmm. I think the U.S. Senate just voted uh, in favor of this $17 billion uh, transfer uh, uh, of uh, essentially weapons and and military power to Israel, not only to give them these weapons, but to then basically remove U.S. oversight over Mm -hmm. the use of weapons. And it really violates U.S. laws to start with. We should not, and we are not allowed by our own laws to provide weapons to human rights abusers. And how can anyone doubt that uh, Israel is is committing uh, war crimes? I mean, there are always war crimes on all sides. But what Israel is doing here is in an absolute league of its own, and the near-unanimous decision of the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, uh, really confirms that. And, you know, the votes that have been taken by uh, the United Nations uh, General Assembly also confirms that. The world understands what's going on here. And I think it's a terrible, not only is it a horrible moral crime uh, to be committing ge- uh, genocide, but it is also a terrible disservice to the people of Israel to 
be uh, doing this and placing Israel now in a position where it is a pariah among nations and has made itself, you know, the object of great, um, you know, uh, uh, hatred and potential violence uh, from its neighbors. So if uh, the U.S. were acting with a shred of uh, moral and ethical responsibility here, it would act as a peacekeeper. It would put an immediate halt uh, to this genocide. It would require that humanitarian relief uh, be be provided immediately. And there's one other thing I will say, that the doubling down now of the U.S. and its allies against UNRWA uh, just adds insult to injury here and is really making a, um, you know, it, it, it's putting this genocide on steroids right now. We, we, you know, use the expression that, you know, this is something on steroids. Well, this is genocide on steroids right now. The fact that UNRWA is being uh, disabled in the midst of an all-out crisis where it's reported that children are now dying from starvation. And I just can't imagine how uh, the U.S. lawmakers can live with themselves. How do they go to sleep at night without hearing, you know, the cries of of children uh, and innocent people who are being absolutely devastated uh, by this genocide, including the starvation that is superimposed on this horrific uh, assault from the air. Um, I understand, as I mentioned before, that you're running for the position of the President of the United States. Uh, what does your party offer over the, two, uh, the two-party system, particularly when it comes to uh, spending on foreign wars? Well, we have a very different approach. We think that uh, the U.S. military budget is a danger to the whole world and to the U.S. Our budget, the U.S. military budget, is the size of the next nine biggest military budgets combined. And if you look at its track record, what has been accomplished by this uh, endless war machine, which is impoverishing the U.S. budget, you know, in the U.S. we are not addressing our own emergencies, whether it is, you know, Flint, Michigan, where the water system has been in crisis for a long time, or you look at East Palestine, uh, Ohio, where the needs of the people are not being met, or in Lahaina, uh, in Hawaii, where, again, the urgent and dire needs of thousands of people uh, in relation to uh, disasters here in the U.S. are not being met, and instead we are sending $17 billion to Israel and another $60 billion uh, to Ukraine for another devastating war, which could have been avoided. So uh, our campaign and the Green Party as a whole, and I must say the American people, want our dollars to be spent. And uh, just to finish the prior thought about the track record, we have conducted war after war, um, spending you know, trillions of dollars, actually, since the, uh, uh, since the post-9-11 wars and, you know, and the uh, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We have been spending, uh, it's estimated to be around 20 or $21 trillion. But what's the track record of that, of those expenses? We've essentially created failed states, uh, mass refugee migration, and continuing terrorist threats. This is just, you know, this is a foreign policy uh, that's equivalent to a bully in the schoolyard. This does not create peace. This does not create a better or more stable world. Uh, the U.S. has been accustomed to being, you know, so-called the, the monopolar 
uh, uh, power in the world. It is not anymore. It's definitely not. The BRICS uh, nations now have a GDP that is greater than that of the U.S. and its allies. And I'm sorry to the, uh, to the people in the West who don't like to hear that, but these are just the facts. Um, uh, the times are changing. We no longer live in a unipolar world. We are now in a multipolar world. We need to be in the business of operating uh, as a responsible international power, respecting international law, and working with international bodies, uh, in particular the United Nations, which needs to be uh, liberated from the dominance of the uh, security now, which does not serve it well. Um, so there are reforms that need to be made in the UN. It's not a perfect body, but uh, we need to start working on that. And we cannot continue to inflict, uh, you know, the power of a sole empire uh, on the rest of the world. This is breaking the backs of our budget as well as uh, mobilizing the rest of the world against us. Oh, great stuff. Thanks. Thanks very much for talking to us. Uh, you've really improved our understanding of uh, the situation uh, in in the Middle East and also about uh, uh, U.S. policy. So thanks very much uh, for coming on. I wish Thank you, you all, very much. I wish you all the best in the future. Thank you so much, and the same to you. And that was Dr. Jill Stein. Um, really enlightening stuff. She's a Harvard-educated doctor and pioneering in, uh, environmental health advocate and an organizer for people, planet, and peace. Uh, moving on to our next guest, I had the pleasure and opportunity to speak to Miss Zohra M. Khurashi Esquire. She is an attorney based in Miami, Florida. She focuses her practice on premises liability, personal injuries, civil litigation, and commercial litigation. And just for, um, for for people's information, prior to joining the firm, uh, Ms. Zohra was a legal intern for a non-profit where she assumed legal responsibilities for several children and youth in foster. Uh, one of her um, posts um, really stood out to me, and I would, I, I'd love to quote this, and where she said, the biggest weapon they have is your silence. So this is Ms. Zohra saying, or quoted, this is one quoting, uh, I'm quoting Ms. Zohra, um, our guest who will be listening to very shortly. Uh, the biggest weapon they have is your silence. Those who repeatedly dox, attack and threaten your livelihood are quite aware of your power and influence. Do not weaponize them. Sometimes the only way to deal with a bully is to square up. So I think we'll be hearing with the, our, our guest, uh, Ms. Zohra, right now. For the benefits of our listeners, can you tell us who is Hamas or what are what what, what is Hamas and uh, what is um, and was it possible to have prevented this war as well? See, that's such a broad question with so many different types of answers depending on who you're asking, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you ask people, Palestinian people, they're going to say Hamas is a group of resistance fighters fighting on behalf for liberation of Palestine. Obviously, you ask the opposite side, they're going to refer to them as um, terrorists, right, who are terrorizing and preventing peace from happening. But reality is, in order for us to be able to even understand this question and be able to properly answer this question, we have to ask, how did Hamas even come about, right? Mm -hmm. They were voted into power as a political entity to speak up on behalf of the people um, in the Gaza Strip. 
mm-hmm. but who emerged, who originated Hamas. If you look back to the history of Palestine and Gaza, this is not something that um, just came about yesterday. This is a 75-year-old journey and fight, yep. which led to the establishment of Hamas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, although we can differ on what they are and who they stand for, reality is resistance and as well as political groups are formed due to a public outcry for resolution, for answers, um, for peace, for support. And that's how groups of any sort come about, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Whether Hamas is a terrorist group by definition or a resistance group by, you know, others, they are doing something that is to bring about attention to the Palestinian cause, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Without whatever it is that actions they took, right or wrong in the books of others or mine, um, it's bringing about attention to the Palestinian people, to their fight that has been ignored um, Mm -hmm. for the last 75 years. We knew about it, but we didn't know about it to this to this, um, the, the complexity of what's going on. People are now aware, you know, people who wouldn't even know to where to, you know, locate Palestine or the Gaza Strip on the map know who, not only where it is now, but what is going yeah. on in there. So, in my opinion, um, you know, Hamas is a group of people mm-hmm. fighting for the liberation of Palestine. Now, like any other group, there are some with the right intentions and some with the wrong intentions. We can't judge, you know, the the entirety um, of a group, just like we're told not to judge a country based on the actions of its government or the group of people based on the actions of its government, right? We can't judge the origins of what Hamas was or what it stands for based on the actions of a select few. You're always going to have some rogue soldiers, right? Hmm. But reality Hmm. is these are a group of people who have endured 75 years of apartheid, oppression, racism, systematic racism, um, who came about to and emerged as to fight for the rights of the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip with the hopes of liberating them. Thank you so much. Um, and, just, and, and just the last part of that question, which was, do, do you think it was possible that we, we could have prevented this war? Do you think this war was preventable or this conflict? Um, that's that's difficult to answer in the sense, um, because in order for something to be preventable, you have to have a meeting of minds on both sides where the conflicts are rising from, right? Mm-hmm. Both sides need to come to an understanding that, you know, Certain things need to happen in order for there to be peace, right? Mm -hmm. You can have peace in a state of war. You can have peace in a state of conflict. Peace is is a state of mind. Mm -hmm. It doesn't bring about any justice or liberation. What the people of Palestine and what the people in the Gaza Strip want is liberation. They want the right to self-determination. They want its independent state back, right? Mm -hmm. But if the other party who's objecting to this, um, or if anybody, in fact, is objecting to this, you will always have conflicts on that end, right? If mm-hmm. people are not dehumanized, if the Palestinian people are currently dehumanized, they are referred to as human animals, as still as yeah. terrorists, children as terrorists, right? If they are not valued, if they are not humanized, if they're not looked at as people, 
deserving of their own land, the right to exist, the right to self-determination, of course there's going to be conflict. Of course there's going to be, you know, people who will revolt against this. Of course people are going to fight um, for their recognition, for, for just to be known um, as human beings, just to have that right to survive of life, right? It's, it's, it's common nature for you to want to fight for the simplest of rights for basic survival. Yeah. So could this war have been prevented? It could have. If people were willing to look at Palestinians as individuals Mm -hmm. who are deserving of land of their own and a state of their own, just like other countries and group of people who are deserving of their own land and recognition and state, Mm -hmm. it could have been prevented. It could have been prevented 75 years ago. It could have been prevented 20 years ago, 30 years ago, as long as there's been conflicts involving Palestine and Gaza. But... Until people and powers that be start recognizing that Palestinians have the right to self-determination and the right to an independent Palestinian state, um, there will always be conflict. You know, and whether it was Palestine or some other country, there will always be conflict until they have that self-determination right. Hmm. Well, thank you for that. Well, well said. Uh, thank you so much for that. Um, th- the next question I would I would have for you is that we, well this is regarding the the ads um, during the Super Bowl and the Super Bowl is not as big in the UK as it is in America and I myself wasn't able to watch it live but I did uh, obviously the ads went quite viral afterwards and very controversial and just regarding these ads um, the ones that um, supported Israel and obviously um, um, those those ads in particular um, do you think that there's like a violation of regulatory standards and uh, as an attorney yourself as well do you think uh, can legal action be taken over here so here's the thing um, some of those ads well I, I myself didn't watch the Super Bowl um, mm-hmm. I saw the ads being <laughs> passed around on social media yep, yep. so I'm not quite exactly sure at which point or another where the ads played However, I did notice that some of the ads stated that they were sponsored by the state of Israel, Hmm. which, um, and just for uh, context, I am a general liability background. I am not familiar with international law. Um, But my understanding that you now have in the United States an ad playing by a foreign entity um, with no, you know, that is, not an not not an entity within the United States, a government body within the United States, it's a foreign entity, a foreign government body that's sponsored and now is playing on live television within the United States. Yeah. Um, there must be some sort of regulatory violation there. Yeah. We had football player Colin Kaepernick who was not allowed to take the knee mm-hmm. at a football game because the quote says. Politics must be left out of sports. And it yeah. was a huge uh, ordeal, which resulted in, I believe, a suspension from a few games, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Yep. Um, or he was severely reprimanded for it. Yeah. So, and that's it. He's a U.S. <laughs> citizen, you know, playing on a U.S. team, and he wasn't allowed to take a stand. Now, um, and there were, they quoted to um, some rules and laws uh, to support the action that they took against this man who took a stand. Um, a protest during, you know, the game. But here we have an ad that is being sponsored by a foreign entity um, on U.S. soil, on U.S. grounds. And imagine, what if it was an ad by Russia? (laughs) What if it was an ad by China? 
people would be up in arms about it. Yeah. So I do believe, um, you know, there is some sort of violation of the international law. Um, there is a commingling of interests as far as um, the U.S. interests and where it aligns to allow something like that. Because if you're going to open the door to allow a this country to have an ad run and sponsored by this country um, on live TV, mm. then the same must be afforded to other countries, right? Yeah. And if the same cannot be afforded to another country based on some laws that prevent it, then clearly a law was violated in order for this ad to be ran um, and sponsored by Israel. Of course. Well, th 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 thank you so much for that. And just, just talking about international law and the violation of international law, um, Israel continues to violate international law and has not complied with the ICG court ruling. What action should be taken against Israel now? So just to understand um, when it comes to the ICJ rulings now, this isn't the first time ICJ has made a ruling um, against Israel. They made one back in 2004, I believe, uh, regard, or 2005 regarding uh, the wall. And ICJ rulings aren't binding in the sense that um, Israel doesn't necessarily have to um, adhere to it, which it says it won't. It won't comply, right? They, they are not shy about vocalizing it won't comply. Now, it goes a step further. Um, in order for ICJ rulings to be enforced, you know, you can take it to the United Nations, right? Um, and the United Nations can then take different avenues, such as sanctioning Israel. Um, they can sanction Israel in, the, in regards to the, the, the process of import-export, whatever the case may be, right? Mm. Um, but it, it needs to be something that, gets voted on and as you can as i'm sure you've been aware of how this goes we always have that one power that be that um either remains silent or abstains and votes against anything that has to do with um, any sort of resolution that would enforce a ruling upon israel yeah. we want this to stop we want the binding uh, you know icg ruling to be binding what needs to happen is the, the other players in this game, U.S. and U.K., they need to stay, take strong. Um, they need to take strong steps, such as stopping the importing of weapons yeah. and funding um, that's that's being used to further this genocide. Mm -hmm. and, and if they don't do that, um, you know, it needs to be known that they too can be complicit in aiding and abating in a genocide. What ICJ is doing right now is they're, they have enough, they had enough um, to state that this can be plausibly a genocide that's being committed, right? Mm. Um, they've given Israel 30 days, I believe this upcoming Monday that's coming up, yeah. um, to provide evidence that they are doing whatever it takes to minimize um, civilian casualties in Gaza, um, mm. that to basically provide evidence in contrary to their intent of committing a genocide, which, as we can see, um, I'm really curious to see what they're going to provide, because after the ICJ ruling and with the intensity that they have continued on their bombardment um, and now, you know, attacking Rafah as we speak, yeah. I am very curious to see uh, what evidence they're going to provide and support to show that they don't have the intentions to commit a genocide. Okay. But what that's going to do is 
what I see Jay Ruling is doing is it's, it's, it's exposure. It is yeah. exposing to the world. This is the first time that Israel has, you know, even acknowledged in the same sentence as possibly having an intent to commit genocide. For the longest time, it was being denied. Mm -hmm. So this is the first time that's happening. And I know um, other countries, like U.S. and U.K., they're, they're put on notice. Um, it's basically a warning to them. Like, this is what the, you know, Israel is going to be tried for eventually. And if you guys don't take the proper steps to ensure that, you know, either you are not aiding or baiting or you, you're providing the proper guidance um, as far as, as, as an ally to ensure that Israel is not committing a genocide, you too will be complicit, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, I wish there was a straight answer. Yeah as to how um unfortunately there isn't it, it, it's it's kind of as if needing to put pressure on other entities that are calling the shot um to put pressure on israel to stop and to, the only way that can be done is is with the fear of, of the possibility of knowing that they too will be complicit and could be tried in icj for for their um involvement in a yeah. genocide yeah well, just uh, absolutely, well said, and just just taking taking away from that as well, um, as 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 you mentioned as well, that those countries who are complicit in this, as as you mentioned, namely the US and the UK, um, and then they they have uh, they they have happened to just um, you know be funding the weaponry and uh, cutting off life saving aid without basis. Um, can they be accountable, or how can we hold them accountable to this? I'm sorry, I, you broke out the last part of your, your questions. I didn't hear you. Yeah, sorry. I was just mentioning uh, regarding the US and the UK, they are complicit to this with funding of weaponry and also cutting off aid without basis. So the, the question would be that, um, ca can they be held accountable? And, uh, and, and, and if, 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 if this is the case, if they are to be held accountable, how, how is it that they can be held accountable? How so? So it's my understanding... Um, that they have followed me to um, stop the funding of Inerva, which is the number one um, entity located in Gaza Strip providing refuge and aid to the to the people of Gaza, right? And this kind of ties back into the being complicit um, with Israel's and its act, whether it's considered aiding and abating by providing weapons, um, by cutting off aid, because they they are put on notice. These countries do have notice that there is an ICG um, court proceedings against Israel, right? Mm -hmm. And this is what happens when you have powerhouses um, involved in, you know, acts of this magnitude, right? And it all comes down to whether or not um, the people were who who have put these um, people in positions of power um, have it in them to fight against this, right? Because I'm a firm believer of those you put in power um, are not the ones who hold the power. It's, in fact, the ones who put the people in mm. power with the power, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, we have the power to speak out against this and fight to the point that those in power know that we will not stop fighting until, you know, there is a resolution. Meaning, how can we do that? 
uh, as, as you may know, the U.S. Um, elections, presidential elections are coming up in, in November, right? Yep. Yep. Um, and whether or not, uh, you know, our president is taking affirmative stance to minimize, um, you know, civilian casualties by doing whatever it says it's claiming to do uh, with Israel, we don't know. But what we do know is that we can pressure, we can put pressure on President Biden mm-hmm. um, by making it known that our vote is not given, it's earned. Mm-hmm. And the same goes for the Republican Party. It's time that these two parties know that they no longer will have the public's vote um, if our tax dollars are now being used and funded for every and any other country um, and their benefit besides the people of the uh, American people who, who don't get to benefit from this. We don't have free education. We don't have free health care. You know, the maternity leave is despicable here. Mm-hmm. Child care is is obnoxious is as much as it costs to you know uh your salary right um but other countries are surviving and thriving off of u.s tax dollars so the u.s public needs to make it known that we are not afraid to vote for a third party we are not afraid um to bring in an independent party as long as this party is for the you know the for the people. Um, we are not afraid to not vote for a Republican or a Democrat candidate that we've been doing um, if it means that our tax dollars will not be used to fund a genocide, number one, and other countries. And I think that impact, that fear of either party, the Republican or the Democratic Party, just knowing that they won't have that strong of a hold um, is more beneficial than any other act because people want to stay in power. That's yeah. in my opinion. They do, you know, they, they want to stay in power. But if we collectively don't make it known that we are the ones that put you in power and yeah. we too can strip you of that power, they're not going to care. Yeah. You know, they yeah. are APAC backed. They think they can just get the ride um, to the White House and, you know, claim that presidential. But it, it, it really depends on the people who go out there and vote. Yeah. And I need people to go out there and this time around not vote for a Republican candidate nor vote for a Democrat candidate yeah. because both parties don't have the best interests of the American people at heart. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that well said. And I think it should be said the same to um, the UK general election as well, uh, with the two parties being yeah. Labour and Conservatives. I think I think it goes for the same for those two parties as well. Uh, taking into consideration our general elections around the corner as well. So um, thank you so much um, for your time, um, Ms. Zohra. Um, really enjoyed uh, speaking to you and listening to you. And I think our listeners, listeners will benefit immensely from your input. So I, I really appreciate your time. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. I seek refuge with Allah from Satan the accursed in the name of Allah the gracious the merciful. Asalaamu Alaikum peace be upon you welcome back dear listeners to the breakfast show you're joined by myself Dokir and Imam Jalis Khan here in the studio voice of Islam so we've just listened to two of our guests um, and uh, recently we just listened to Zohra 
uh, Khurashi. Uh, I believe that's that's how her name was pronounced. Yeah, uh, Ms. Zohra Khurashi. Khurashi, yes. Yeah. So we we listened to we listened to her. Uh, we've listened to Dr. Jill Stein, and uh, for this particular segment, we're looking at Palestinians. Um, and the whole situation in Gaza over there. Uh, lastly, uh, we do have a we did uh, do an interview with Aslam Daud, who is the chair of Humanity First Canada. Uh, so this is what he had to say. So we have with us today at the Voice of Islam radio station, Dr. Aslam Daud, and uh, Dr. Aslam Daud, you're a chair of Humanity First Canada, and. Uh, your volunteer time between local and international projects uh, is divided between that and also from disaster relief assistance to supporting a food bank that delivers food to those in need in Greater Toronto Area. Assalamu alaikum and thank you for joining us today. Walaikum assalam warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. It's my honor to be here. Thank you. So we wanted to ask you uh, regarding some of your Humanity First work as well, that how does the Humanity First teams collaborate during times of emergency crisis? So there are two things. One, the collaboration between the various Humanity First chapters uh, or countries. Uh, so the four leading countries that uh, that are working in 60, over 60 countries around the world are Humanity First, uh, UK, USA, Canada, and Germany. We uh, we help uh, uh, in managing the different countries by taking lead where depending on the geographical area or which country is being managed. So, for example, if uh, uh, Humanity First Canada is already working in a country, then we will try to respond ourselves and uh, and get help as required basis from other lead countries and other countries as well. Similarly, if Humanity First UK is active in some places, then we will all support Humanity First UK and uh, through their coordination and, uh, and we'll provide them the assistance that they need. In addition to that, we also collaborate with uh, external organizations and other organizations. We believe in collaboration and cooperation with partners on the ground. Um, the first thing that we do when we are on, already on the ground is that we join the cluster, the UN cluster, it's called UN OCHA, uh, Office of Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, or uh, sometimes they open a cluster office in, under uh, another organizations like the WHO or World Food Program. We join that and we work with them. Uh, over there, the coordination is done so that there's no duplication and we're not rubbing shoulders, but rather uh, either we, we divide the areas in, in geographical ways or or uh, depending on the type of response, and we share the work and work with each other to provide the most necessary support. Uh, and uh, a single coordination office makes sure that uh, we are reaching out to everyone and, and the support is given in an organized way. Uh, sometimes when we don't have a direct presence uh, or access in, in certain areas, then we rely on our local partners who would uh, provide the support and help um, uh, through us, and we will fund fund the activities there. In the past, we have uh, worked through Save the Children. Currently, we are working with Anera and other organizations. Well, that's excellent work, uh, Dr. Daud. And in this particular segment, uh, we're looking at the situation in Gaza, and we wanted to know 
what the humanity first response has been before and now um you know after after the war has begun um so what are some of the challenge challenges which are being faced by humanity first there so uh, since uh, we heard about the humanitarian need uh, we we jumped on uh, on on the opportunity to help but to our very much disappointment um, this was a very different situation where we were not able to help people the way we have helped in when there is a earthquake tsunami a flood or in other situations uh, unfortunately um the situation was very different as you know that the current situation is that about over 28000 people have died 68000 have been injured and 1.7 million people are displaced right now and there has been full electricity blackout over there access is really much restricted uh we had the biggest challenge of providing aid over there uh, right uh, after the situation we got a call from WHO world health organization that if we can send a medical teams to help out we immediately got a team ready here in Canada consisting of doctors nurses paramedics to go to respond our supplies were ready and we uh, we were ready to deploy and we asked WHO uh, will you be able to provide some transportation or will you be able to provide some uh, security uh, over there because the only way to access it through Egypt and Egypt was not allowing any vehicles to go there um, or uh, even rent out a vehicle uh, so there was unfortunately not much opportunity for us to uh, go there so but uh, who said that they are unable to do themselves and we had to really stand down uh, to send our team uh, right at that time but uh, this is just one example of our setback that we had faced in in this situation we have tried to access to other ways we had tried to partner with some other organizations but initially we were not successful luckily after some time we were able to have some partnership with humanity uh, with anera uh, which is a us based organization but which is very active in uh, in 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 the affected area they have their local team over there similarly humanity for palestine was there where humanity for uk was doing so we started working with them uh, those who were already there and coordinated with them and somehow uh, through the larger consignments we were able to send send some aid as well and uh, from uk we were able to send some volunteers as well over there and and now we are providing help but again it's just like a, a drop in the ocean we have been trying to provide the uh, emergency supplies like blankets clothing water tin food floor rice hygiene supplies uh, these were sent to the rafa crossing we have been uh, we have provided some medical supplies through uh, our local stories that we had with humanity for palestine over there um, then we've been helping the idps in gaza through anera they're, they're managing number of camps uh, with the help of anera uh, each camp consists of about 2000 or more people over there um, and uh, this is mostly help with food and other emergency supplies over there uh, our team went there uh, to, with the help of un convoy and saw the situation in the first hand unfortunately situation was not at all for promising and and it looked like there was uh, a lot of help needed we tried to uh, 
uh, we are we are working to send tents over there and some other supplies which are immediately needed. And also, uh, we are gearing up for long-term project of sustainable rebuilding projects uh, as soon as there is a full ceasefire and we will be able to go in a bigger number, then we will start providing assistance uh, uh, in the long term. Oh, great. Thank you so much for that. And uh, just adding on to um, that question, I wanted to ask you, what are some of the challenges which are being faced by doctors or those from uh, medical professions who speak for humanity? This is a extremely sad situation and uh, it is something which is unprecedented that something which is very obvious, there is a humanitarian crisis and you're not even able to speak about it that is that is something shocking. The governments are not speaking in very clear words. Things are changing slightly. There was a statement by the government of Canada, a joint statement by the government of Canada, New Zealand, uh, and Australia that that they that they have again demanded for ceasefire. But uh, up till now, the situation has been that you cannot even speak in favor of uh, providing help to the affected people. You cannot say that this is a human, humanitarian catastrophe. And uh, and uh, the, the risk to the medical professionals is so much that people, the aid workers and doctors have died in these attacks. There is no protection because of a, you're a humanitarian aid worker. This is, this is extremely sad. And people who have, uh, uh, in Canada even, uh, people who have spoken about uh, in favor of uh, providing assistance to the people of Gaza, um, the doctors, the lawyers, they have been penalized uh, and they have su- uh, uh, suffered consequences because of that. On the other hand, when uh, people have signed up and said that um, uh, that uh, whatever is happening over there is justified, um, that has created divisions among people. And unfortunately, um, not much can be done about it. I'm hoping and I'm praying that uh, hearts will change and people will see uh, that humans, humanitarian, human, human suffering uh, must be attended to regardless of what you believe in or what, who you support to. Human suffering cannot be allowed. If we uh, want to call ourselves human beings, we have to uh, respond and help the people who are affected. Those are innocent people. They did not do anything wrong. They are dying. They are being injured. Children becoming orphaned. No reason, no, no fault of them. So we we need to change that. And we're trying our best. We are reaching out to the government authorities and asking them uh, to do whatever they have they can do. As a, as a humanitarian organization, the only thing we can do is just help out these people. No, thank you for that and uh, fantastic work uh, Humanity First Canada is doing. Um, and I think just the last question um, before we do let you go, Dr. Daud, is that how can we, the listeners uh, listening to you, how can we get in more involved and how can we help? So uh, I, I'm just going to appeal to all the listeners here that you have to stand up and and feel the pain that is being felt by people who have been, uh, I would say, persecuted and are suffering. Um, 
you have to dig deep in your pockets to help them out. There are two ways to help. You can donate to Humanity First, and you can volunteer to help both locally or internationally uh, going uh, over there. When time comes, we assure, we do uh, make sure that there is safety and security of our volunteers. And we only go when, when it is uh, safe, quite very safe to go there. So if you would like to volunteer, do register on the respective country sites, uh, websites where if you're in the UK, sign up with HF UK. If you're in Canada, sign up with uh, HF Canada website. It's www.humanitycult.ca. And uh, everybody who uh, everybody can donate something to this cause. It is not, it's not going to be a short term. It's not going to be uh, in millions of dollars or even billions of dollars. There will be trillions of dollars required to really rebuild and whatever is in our capacity, Humanity First is going to do. We're going to continue to help people who are affected. And uh, once we have a better opportunity, we're going to do some rebuilding projects over there to help as many people as possible. And for that, uh, we are prepositioning ourselves. And I appeal to all listeners to please um, uh, consider donating uh, as much as possible and continue to donate regularly until things are become a little bit stable. I don't know when it will become, but it will be quite some time. Uh, Dr. Aslam Daud, Chair of Humanity First Canada, thank you so much for taking your time out and uh, joining us today. Thank you. Uh, unfortunately, you're breaking up. I cannot hear you anymore. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Aslam Daud, for joining us uh, today and sharing your expertise on the subject. Thank you so much. So that was uh, Dr. Aslam Daud um, and uh, fantastic work he is doing um, for Humanity First in Canada. Um, you know, the the understanding the whole situation, Jalees, that, um, you know, even though people do want to help, but the thing is, within that piece of land within Gaza, mm-hmm. there's so much restrictions that... You know, it's hard to even get in uh, yeah. because I was listening to other guests as well. They were mentioning that, you know, sometimes just to for lorries or for yeah. aid supplies to go in, yeah. you know, they, they're not allowing everyone. Yeah. There is restriction there as well. And that itself yeah. can be of a hindrance. Yeah, definitely. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I, th- I believe that Humanity First was the first NGO to actually go into the into the Gaza Strip. Um, and that's that's an amazing feat mm-hmm. because, as you said right now, it's it's, it's, in, it's incredibly difficult to get into the Gaza Strip right now um, and to provide aid. So it's it's amazing work, absolutely that Aslam Sab is doing, um, or brother Aslam is doing. Um, and yeah, definitely, yeah, absolutely. And uh, we're now moving on to our next segment where we're looking at that. Uh, how can I be successful in life? What is the key? So th- that is the segment we're looking at. And if any of our listeners do want to get in touch, if they do uh, have anything to say, they can call us on 208 That's the number to call if you do want to get in touch with us. So everybody wants to sail through life, finding peace and comfort, uh, that their difficulties be resolved, griefs and problems be removed that they be granted every kind of success and victory. So how to find this outer and inner peace, both in the material and in the spiritual sense? And if a person desires 
that his world be set aright, that he become the best version of himself, that he be granted every kind of success and victory, then what is the roadmap of achieving that? And the other question is, has Islam provided any guidance on this? And this is what we will be looking at, that what does Islam say when it comes to uh, a successful lifestyle? I mean, this is something which uh, every person in the world, you know, it it uh, yearns to, to have. And... Uh, you know, we we'll be also looking discussing the recent trends and approach towards uh, success by having a discussion with our esteemed guest and get their views on the subject as professional mentors. And we'll also see what answers, uh, what solution does Islam as a universal religion has uh, to offer with with regards to that as well. And uh, I believe we do have our first guest on. Uh, we are joined by Mr. Hans, who is uh, an ex-lawyer providing executive career and life coaching for London Square Mile. And most of his clients are professionals at a point where they are ready to up their game and create deeper fulfillment and greater success both in their careers and lives. And uh, he supports them uh, with their career planning, leadership skills and personal effectiveness. So without further ado, uh, thank you for joining us uh, this morning, uh, Mr. Han. Either are you are you are you with us? So we're just uh just facing a few technical difficulties, we're just trying to get him on. Um, I think um, I think I think one of the other questions that we should be well, and hopefully we'll be tackling as well, is that uh, can you be successful within the scope of religion as well? Like, can you be religious as well as being successful? Because I think we see um, a lot of successful people who might not be as religious. But in in terms of materialistic and material success, they're definitely up there. We see the likes of uh, Elon Musk, as well as Jeff Bezos, who are very successful in their own fields. But they they, they might not be as openly religious as uh, um, other people. So I think this is another thing that we might uh, definitely be tackling. And uh, it would be very interesting to see what Islam uh, says about this as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Uh, Mr. Hans, are, are you with us? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, yes, very, very, Excellent. very good, very good. That's that's great. Uh, so thank you for, for joining us uh, this morning. And we wanted to ask you, in your experience with uh, meeting different clients, how would you personally define the word success and how do people generally view success? Yeah, people come to me with kind of... Um, superficial, very common goals, like setting up a business, getting a promotion, becoming more confident. And when they tell me about these goals, I always ask them, what's that really about? Um, why is, what makes that important? Mm. And it comes down to kind of big picture ideas or notions of success, like financial freedom or status or wealth. 
And when people tell me that, uh, then I ask them, okay, but what is that about? Mm. Because we only want money and wealth and status and freedom for the things that it allows us to do. And that's when it becomes really interesting. Because we all seem to pick up like a game on this planet that we think will make us happier or safer. And that becomes our chase for success. But it doesn't always give us what we want. So I may have the chase for being a successful entrepreneur, but maybe neglect my family, my relationships. And I have that success, but I still feel lonely. So really looking into what is that success for me personally, um, as opposed to what society may tell me what success is, is a really important starting point for any kind of growth journey. Uh, no, that's very, very interesting, actually. And I, I wanted to hear more about uh, what sort of, uh, you know, commonly people struggle with that do come to you. Um, and, and how is it that you, you guide them? Yeah, there are, there are different themes. One theme is that people just don't really know what they want. Mm. That they're quite confused because we hear so many messages from social media, from friends and society that tell us how we should be. But often people already feel there's a kind of discrepancy between what I really want and what society tells me what I want. Or people feel not confident enough to really go for the things that they really want. Or indeed, they are quite hung up on one particular material definition of success. And and they want to be supported um, on how to get there. But if you go below that again, there is a very common theme that I think all human beings suffer from. If we, if we look very deeply, we are all kind of trying to survive by being safe and loved. And we struggle with core emotions. We are so much more complicated than animals. Um, we are angry because things are not as we think they should be. Mm. We are fearful because things could happen to us. And we are sad because maybe there, we don't have the connections to other people or to God or to um, um, loved ones. And we all navigate these things. And when people get hung up about a particular way of success, often it is a way of managing or compensating for those emotions. Mm, so yeah. if you look at these core themes, we, we really understand the DNA of a person and the psychological pattern. And if we look at those themes, we are much more likely to create a fulfilling life experience than following a template of success that society gives us. Mm, no, fantastic. And I guess from person to person, you give different uh, advice on how they can achieve those goals right and yeah t- tell us a bit a bit about that well again there are two levels at which we can look at this if they have these what i call kind of superficial goals like landing the job or setting up your own business then we may be looking at at practical steps how to do this whether it is about learning certain leadership skills productivity or um, or other skills that they need for their success but below this if we look at success at a deeper level the tools that I recommend are about self-awareness and emotional intelligence I often compare us to people who are very powerful, but we don't really know how we function. 
We have all these apps in our body, in our brain mainly, also in our heart, in our gut, and we don't really know how they work. And we run through life almost a little bit clueless without having done the work to explore what are my thoughts, my feelings, my instincts, how do they impact on how I live. And self-awareness um, allows us to learn how we operate and use that to be better equipped to um, create the life outcomes that we want. And then the other piece is emotional intelligence, also understanding how other people are different, how the world looks differently from their perspective. And that's so powerful in ensuring that we have healthy relationships, that we can have compassion for people rather than um, judging them and transcending this rift that we experience at the moment across the world where we all drift apart from each other by being more and more polarized because obviously my views are right, views are wrong. And if we have emotional intelligence, we understand we all come from the same place. We all go through the same human experience. And there is a journey where we look to understand each other and be more compassionate. And I think these are the kind of journeys that are much more likely to give us real fulfillment in life. Well, that's enlightening stuff, uh, Mr. Hans. Thank you so much for that. You know, really going deep into the human psyche and really understanding what human really wants. Um, what I would want to pose to, to you would be that the, the significance of, you know, good mindset. So what, what is the true significance of a good mindset? Well, mindset is a little bit like the, a computer or database that we have that determines everything that we do. It's really important. When we react to something, when we choose a behavior, um, our mind um, looks for guidance in our database. So it's really important that this database has good stuff in there. Yeah. If it's full of negative beliefs about myself, for example, I'm not good enough, people will judge me, mm -hmm. I'm just not good at running a business, it will backfire because I tend to recreate then the same experience of what I already believe to be true. Our subconscious always looks for evidence to confirm what we already believe to be true, even if it's negative. So it's really important that we take stock of what that database is. When, if my clients are up for it, I ask them to uh, maintain a diary of their thoughts for one or two weeks, and then we look at each of them one by one. Is that a true statement? Is, what, is it really helpful? Or are there other statements that are also true or even more true and that give us better results for our life? Mm -hmm. Because people who are successful often have a very productive, resourceful mindset. Yeah. I can do attitude and, and that, that is really important for our personal effectiveness. Mm. Well, thank you so much for that. I think you've, you've, you've thoroughly explained a good mindset and what successful people kind of think as well and their thought patterns. So thank you so much for that. Um, for the benefit of for our listeners, would you, would you mind sharing something that you personally found very inspiring? Well, I'm inspired by people who don't play the normal game that society tells us to play, mm. who choose their own path um, rather than being too obsessed about what will other people think, what will society think if I don't go the officially recognized path. And rather than being so concerned about the um, material success, spending a lot of time on deep inner work. 
the psychological groundwork that we all need to do so that we don't run around the planet like loose cannon mm. that thinks I need to lash out if I don't have it my way. Um, so really deep spiritual teachers who practice this kind of self-reflection, compassion and mindfulness, I find that very beautiful and peaceful. Well, thank you so much for that, Mr. Hans. Um, you've been an amazing guest. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I do believe I do believe my uh, co-host uh, brother Tuki does have another question for you. Okay. Uh, yes, Hans. Uh, think, uh, this is a question um, from the producer, and uh, the question is that you know since a lot of people come to you and uh, you see the bigger picture, right? Like so many people come to you, so. Do you tell them that uh, what they want is not going to make them happy or successful, uh, what they're aiming for? Do, do you see people like that, that uh, they, they come to you, they say that, you know, maybe this is what they want. But because of your experience, you can already say that, hey, that's, that's necessarily not what's going to make you happy in life. Yeah, I mean, I don't tell it directly. I guide them through a series of introspective questions that allows them to come to the conclusion um, themselves. I always invite them to reflect what's that really about and how will it actually serve me or not. Mm. Ultimately, I then leave it up to the client whether they still want to go ahead with that goal, but there's always the space. To, to really go quite deep into it. And that's probably also what, what, what I'm known for amongst my clients. And people typically respond very well to this. They may just never have really asked themselves the question. Um, like, yeah, what is financial freedom for? Well, surely that must be good. Everybody wants it. But, um, but is it really? I had, um, do I have time for a little example? Yes, yes, of course. Um, I had a client um, who was a lawyer who told me that he was going through hell at work because it was such a stressful environment. Mm, mm. But he was quite adamant that he wanted to stay in the job for another 10 years until a point in time where he thought he would get financial um, independence. And I asked him, so what's that really about? What will that give you, the financial independence? And he said... Well, if I have financial independence, I will spend more time with my wife and my kids, my friends, Mm. and I will be able to travel more. And I told them, well, it sounds like the only thing that keeps you away from doing this right now is the job that you have, the prison in which you put yourself. So that's the kind of insight that we can get to if we look a little bit deeper into what is that success that we are chasing. No, sounds very interesting, um, uh, and and uh, I do wish the best of luck to you um, and the work that you're doing. Uh, honestly, uh, fantastic mm-hmm. work you're doing, and thank you so much for joining us this morning and uh, sharing your expertise on this subject. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, that was uh, Mr. Hans Schumann um, who gave his expertise. And uh, Jalisa, I, I will take up your question that you were mentioning earlier. Yeah. Um, and you asked the question um, that, you know, necessarily the the word success, you know, even if someone who's not religious, you know, yeah. uh, how can they attain that? Yeah. Um, and, uh, but before we do, 
go into that and look at the Islamic perspective. <laughs> yeah. I've just been told by by my um, by the tech team that we are joined by our next guest. Uh, we are joined now by Vanessa King. Uh, so Vanessa King, Action for Happiness, a movement for people working together to build a happier, kinder world. Uh, she is the author of four books, including the 10 keys to happier living and creating the world we want to live in uh, so without further ado let's get vanessa king on uh good morning thank you for joining us oh thank you it's a pleasure thank you thank you great to have you on and we wanted to ask you um vanessa in your experience uh do you find that people pay attention to what thoughts they harbor inside and what they choose to let go? Yeah, of, of course. I mean, our thoughts, I mean, uh, we've got this, um, our brain has, you know, this amazing kind of forebrain, which is, you know, incredible. It's um, capable of thinking of future strategies, scenarios, being creative. But it's also really good at kind of creating and generating worries and stress for ourselves. So, and it's those thoughts that kind of direct how we feel and and what we do as a result, what actions we take. Fantastic. And how do good or positive thoughts? How do they help in our in our daily lives? But it's kind of interesting because there's been a lot of um, research and also a lot of controversy about what's called you know positive thinking, i.e., ignoring what's wrong and just only focusing on the positive, which is. Um, not particularly yeah, helpful in the long run because we have to stay realistic and grounded. But actually, um, when we kind of um, cultivate more kind of positive thoughts, not, not ignoring that what's wrong, but also cultivate more positive thoughts, that it can have quite um, um, you know, you know, curious and positive results. Um, because what's interesting is the human brain evolved um, not really for modern life, but to keep us alive when we were in a kind of hunters and gatherers, you know, out there when life was more risky. So our human brain evolved to focus on what's wrong and interpret any kind of neutral things like a little rustle in the grass or whatever as, oh, there could be a potential predator there as opposed to, um, oh, you know, gentle breeze today. So we're, our brains evolved to focus on what's wrong, but we can actually train our brains to 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 notice um, what's right, not ignore mm-hmm. what's wrong, but notice what's right. And what happens when we do that, when we experience more kind of pleasant thoughts and feelings, that there is both a physiological and a psychological effect that happens. So we are more... Uh, when we're in a more positive sort of um, state, that are um, we literally see more. Our perceptual fields broaden. We're more open to others. We're more trusting of others. We're better at creative um, problem solving. We're more open to ideas and learning. And little by little, that builds our capabilities, our resilience, um, our connections with others, and all of which boost our well-being. Well, thank you so much for that. You, you've just shed light on um, how uh, positive thoughts can uh, help people in life. But on the other side, um, how much do you think negative thoughts can become an obstacle for a person? Well, one of one of the areas that kind of, if 
you like, negative thoughts um, can be an obstacle is kind of our thoughts and our kind of inner voice, if you like, about ourselves. Now, many, many, many of us have a highly critical inner voice. Yeah. So it's that sort of thing. So if you think about, if you think about for a moment, if a friend or a colleague messes up or makes a mistake, how would you speak to them? You know, what mm. would you say? How would you say it? The tone, voice, etc. Now think about you making the same mistake or failing in the same way. What would you know? What would mm. your inner voice be saying to you, and how would it be saying it? Now my guess is, like most people, mm. our inner voice would be a lot tougher and more critical of ourselves than we would be towards a friend who'd messed mm. up in a similar way. It might be telling Vanessa, you're so stupid. How could you do that? You're the only one in the yeah. world that does that. You know, and that is not benign. That inner voice, that critical inner voice, it wants to help us. It wants us to improve, to be better. Mm. But actually what it's doing is activating the threat system in our primitive emotional brain. This is the part of the brain that we share with other mammals. It's primitive, instinctive. And when the threat system is triggered, it actually closes us down. So we're less likely to look for solutions, for learning, to move forward, etc. So that kind of those negative thoughts about how stupid we are, how we're not good enough, whatever, um, can often be real obstacles for us kind of making the most of our potential. and, you know, moving through issues and obstacles. Yeah, no, I, I understand. I, I do understand this point. But how can you differentiate between being uh, self-reflective and, you know, trying to uh, be um, kind of just, yeah, just, just reflecting and uh, reflecting on one's actions and trying to better oneself and to be completely critical and to uh, put someone, like, put, put oneself down? Yeah, um, well, I think reflection is really important, but it's actually being, it's almost often like treating yourself as you would a good friend. So, mm-hmm. or, or I often talk about, you know, cultivating an inner coach mm-hmm. as opposed to an inner critic. So, you know, if you're working with a coach, whether it's a sports coach or a professional coach or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, that person would help you look at maybe what you've done, your actions or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and look at those in a kind of neutral, objective way and say, okay, yeah, that messed up. You made a mistake there. You could have done more preparation or you could have mm. chosen to do it me. Um, but So what can we learn from that? So instead of be just beating yourself up, it's actually helping you to step back, reduce the emotion around that and then able you to actually you know, learn from it and grow from it. Um, yeah, no, that- Thank you so much for that, shedding shedding some light on that. If we just go to take a, a small step back and just go back to the negative thoughts, um, can can these negative thoughts hinder personal and professional life as well? Yeah, well, yes, both. They can affect both because mm-hmm. you know if you're in work and you've got that that kind of um, inner critical inner voice going, mm-hmm. you know, critiquing everything you do, yeah. that is going to kind of hold you back and it might be that you you're in a meeting and you've got a great idea but that inner voice is saying oh that's really stupid Vanessa how could you know no, and nobody else has come up with that idea so it's just people are going to think it's really stupid so you don't say it and it could have been a really great idea or you don't notice where there's an issue and there's other ways that we can those negative thoughts can kind of hold us back if you like um, whether 
personally or professionally is um, we can ruminate. So I don't know, you know, we something kind of we're annoyed with ourselves or annoyed with something mm-hmm. or someone, and that thought keeps churning, churning, churning around our mind, and we mm-hmm. can't let it go. Um, and that kind of then again takes our attention off from kind of constructive things, and it's creating. It's actually generating stress for ourselves. Mm. You know, mm. We know when we're stressed, we're less effective. Yeah, when we've got too much stress, I mean, stress in itself is not a bad thing. Yeah. But um, so, you know, or we can catastrophize. You know, some of us are, not everybody's like this, but many people are, that something rock goes wrong. And we go from, I don't know, I don't know we make a mistake at work in a, a, in a report or something. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we go from, we go from, oh, gosh, I've got to that. That's a bit embarrassing. What can I do to correct it? Instead of doing that, we go from, I've made a mistake at work. People are going to think I'm really rubbish. It means I'm not going to get a promotion. I won't get a pay rise. Yeah. Oh, my God. Then actually, I might even be sacked, you know, and then yeah. I won't be able to get a job. And we go from this tiny mistake or whatever, it's going to be a more substantial mistake, to kind of complete doom and gloom in a matter of seconds. Mm. And many of us are natural catastrophizers, and then we're not. That is, again, activating that threat system um, in our brains, which then makes us defensive um, or um, it can make us kind of withdraw and hide away with shame. Um, Mm. And um, so neither of which are good states to help us kind of do our best, really. Yeah, no, you're 100% correct. You're absolutely right. But do do you think that um, because, because these thoughts, they have such power over us and they're so like they're immaterial they're just in our heads but yet they they control so much of our lives do you think talking to someone and just kind of um bringing it into shape and kind of talking through it do you you think that would uh, help someone yeah it can really help i mean i think the most important thing is to remember that uh, i mean i love this quote thoughts aren't facts yeah you know uh, we think we think because we think it's a fact it's reality but it's not because of the brain the brain work the brain is like as i said designed to keep us safe so it's designed Mm. to have really quick responses emotional instinctive responses to a situation and it will err on the side of caution so um it's called emotional false alarms um Mm. um rather than sitting back and standing objectively now once we've kind of you feel that, oh, you know, oh, God, you know, I think that person kind of, my boss looks a bit upset with me. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all setting off all sorts of alarms in our head. Um, actually being able to just say, hang on, what's the evidence for that? You know, that then we step, we can step, once we've noticed that emotional state, we can step into mm-hmm. a more kind of objective, let's look at the evidence here. But yeah. of course, it can really help. If this is a, a sort of pattern we keep finding ourselves stuck in, mm-hmm. we can get the um, you know the help from um, a coach, from a therapist, mm-hmm. from some you know a wise person that we feel can take it you know can take an objective view, um, help us take an objective view, and step back and almost like look you know look at ourselves objectively yeah. um, can absolutely help. Um, um, well, yeah, if people are finding that they're you know, getting stuck in those patterns mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time uh, Ms. Viz- uh, Vanessa King uh, We really appreciate you joining us um, in, the, in the breakfast show um, I wish you all the best and again, thank you so much Really appreciate you joining us this morning Yeah, and if people want to find out more you can go to the actionforhappiness.org website which has got um, lots of information We've got 
10 keys to happier living and there's loads of free resources so people can find out more there that's amazing that's amazing and this is this is the book that you've authored yourself right yeah well the uh, the framework i I created for the action for happiness um for the movement which is the 10 areas that taking action and can science has been scientifically shown to boost our happiness um and um but there's lots of practical ideas um that people can try out including looking at how our thoughts affect how we feel and what we do um so there's and it's as i said it's lots of free resources we also have a monthly calendar based on those Mm -hmm. which is available for free to download and in about 30 translated into about 30 different languages so so if english isn't your first language there's um, the chances are your language is, is there. Oh. <laughs> and if it's not, you can volunteer to translate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's perfectly yeah. fine. I think I, th- I think we have a few people in the studio who, would, who wouldn't mind doing that. So it's okay. <laughs> like, like, thank you so much. Um, really appreciate it. And I, and I know our listeners are going to benefit from this talk and this conversation immensely. So thank you so much for joining us this morning, Miss Vanessa. You're welcome. And uh, have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, peace and blessings of a love you upon you. Yeah, so that that was uh, Vanessa, uh, Vanessa King, and uh, fantastic interview there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, now we're look, coming to the Islamic perspective of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jalees, you were asking earlier that question that, hey, well, someone who's not religious and uh, he's still doing well in his life, yeah. he's still doing successful. Why is that the case? Yeah. I mean, if we look at the first chapter of the Holy Quran, um, the the Surah Fatiha. Uh, the two uh, we know about the two attributes of Allah the Almighty is that He is Ar Rahman, but He is also Ar Rahim. Yeah. So He is the most gracious, but He is also the most merciful. Yeah. And the the deeper meaning of gracious meaning that Allah the Almighty has provided everything in this world. Yeah. He's provided us uh, with food, with water, with air to breathe in. A lot of these common things that we we don't even probably take into consideration yeah. on a daily basis. Yeah. But he's also a rahim. Yeah. And the meaning, the deeper meaning of this is that if a person works hard and he puts effort into something, mm-hmm. then his his him being merciful is that he will still reward that individual yeah. person. Yeah. And even if there's an atheist who does not believe in God and he yeah. is the most Strict atheist, but yet he works hard. Yeah. Allah the Almighty being merciful, yeah. he will yeah. still bless that person. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that individual will still uh, attain as a reward. And it's, it's a rule of life, really, yeah, that if you work hard for something generally, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you will get yeah. it. But um, the broader meaning of success we read in the Holy Quran mm-hmm. uh, that aflaha. Manzakaha. Yeah. And the meaning of this verse is that he truly prospers who purifies himself. Mm-hmm. So what this means is that true success can only be achieved if you purify yourself. Mm-hmm. So that is the definition yeah. of uh, of success, yeah. true purification. And yeah. what's interesting is that the word itself, aflaha, if we look at different dictionaries it includes two types of success and this can mean the material success but it can also 
mean spiritual success. Yeah. So, in actual fact, the crux of the matter is that success has been tied to achieving purification of the self. And even the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, the founder of the Amdiya Muslim community, mm. he explains that purification of the self means the doing of all good, all that is good, and the abandonment of all that is wrong and sinful. And in other words, the adoption of light and the abandoning of darkness. And the second caliph of the Amdiya Muslim community, Azabiz Abashir, the Mahmoud Abad, may Allah the Almighty be pleased with him, he has stated that he who overcomes his bara self is not a slave to his desires, attains purification, and he has presented 11, 11 steps, yep. right? 11, yep. steps 11 steps to attain those, uh, the, the 11 steps of mm -hmm. purification. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, we, we don't have time to of course. Uh, go through all of them. Yeah. Uh, some of the steps are purification of one's thought. Yeah. Adopting the the method, right method, mm -hmm. adopting godly attributes, resilience and steadfastness, righteous company, self-awareness. Um, for example, just looking at the first aspect of it, yeah. purifying one's thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we see that it's it's a simple philosophy and we see its application in our daily life and if you have something that's rotten instead of cleaning or getting rid of it you just simply add something new mm. and fresh to it the whole thing will still goes to waste yeah. you know you can't you can't say that okay because it's rotten and i've added more fresh things to it yeah suddenly it's going to get better and i can just eat the whole whole stew it's it's still going to yeah. be rotten and that's the thing the, the Holy Prophet peace be upon him said that in the body of a man there is a piece of flesh and if this piece of flesh is sound the whole body becomes sound and if mm -hmm. it is corrupt the whole body becomes corrupt behold mm -hmm. it is the heart so beautifully saying that if there is a sort of ill desire you know that we hold upon and we don't get rid of it yeah. that itself will then consume the whole body it will ruins the whole soul of that individual person so mm -hmm. the general rule is that that you shun it straight away yeah that evil thought if it is there you get rid of it straight yeah. away so it doesn't fester it doesn't grow mm -hmm. and that is um, what is meant by yeah. uh, self-purification can then lead to success no definitely yeah and i think this is something that we are our guests mentioned as well you know the significance of thought and this is the first of the steps of purification or you could even say towards success um that are mentioned by uh, the, the second caliph and the second uh, second successor of the promised messiah uh, upon whom be peace amazing stuff you know honestly really really deep stuff and this is what miss vanessa king herself said as well okay Thoughts aren't facts. And this is mm. what we need to achieve as well, okay? When we, when we have these thoughts, evil thoughts brewing in our brain, we can't let them to become facts. We have to get rid of them straight away. And it's beautifully put, as you, as you said, something that is pure and you add something rotten to it. No matter how much pure milk or stew that you add, keep on adding uh, fresh water, the crux of the matter is the, 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 the toxic or the, or the impure 
attribute in that stew, in that water, in the milk is still present there, no mm. matter how much you add to it. This is an amazing fact as well. And something that really spoke to me um, in terms of these steps of purification, one of the ones that you mentioned, is righteous company. It's extremely important. Um, extremely important um, to have good surroundings. This is something that we see in all these help books, you know, all mm. these self-help books. You know, your surrounding means a lot to you. Uh, keep your friends close. Um, make, make, make sure that the friends that you keep, the company that you keep, um, is really good for you because um, as an old um, uh, Urdu uh, proverb that um, the colour of, of the watermelon um, well t- t- takes the colour of another watermelon mm. so, 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 so you will you will act and you will react in the same way that your surroundings um, that your surroundings allow you to and if you have good atmosphere you have good company this will allow you to better yourself in the future as well mm. if you have someone who is maybe lying a lot or maybe um, swearing a lot or um, is smoking, taking drugs, you will automatically be inclined towards those things. And this is something that Islam teaches to to, to keep good company. Um, And then this is one of the steps of uh, purification as well on the road to success. You know, very, very, very deep stuff over here. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And that reminds me of the prayer as well, what the Wafana Malabra, yeah. that yeah. May Allah the Almighty even, you know, caused me to die. It doesn't truly mean that alongside yeah. my friend, but what it truly means yeah. that amongst those people who, who are righteous. Yeah, so, who are righteous, yeah. Um and and I think that that goes with everything really, that if we surround ourselves with those individuals who are driven, who yeah. are successful, then it will have an impact on us as well. And if Definitely. you know, if we're within our own circle, there are people who generally it's you know they they don't care or they're not motivated. Then yeah. the the uh, the general rule is that it will affect you as well. Yeah. You know, Definitely. whether you like Definitely. it. Definitely, I think I think it's worth mentioning here. I believe it is the incident of again the the second successor of uh, the Prophet's Messiah upon whom be peace, where a gentleman came to him and said that I am getting atheistic thoughts. Mm. And um, the, 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 second, the second successor of the Ahmadi Muslim community or um, the second caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community responded um, saying that you should move, um, the, m- move away from whatever company you have, move seats. And within maybe a month or so, he came back and said, I do not have those atheistic mm. uh, beliefs mm. anymore. And it's because of the, his, 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 his colleague or his classmate that he was saying next to would, um, would boast about being an atheist or would have atheistic thoughts himself. And that kind of rubbed off on him. Mm. So d- d- definitely these, these steps that um, the second uh, caliph of the, uh, of the Muslim community has presented are of um, definite use for anyone who wants to purify themselves and again on the road to success absolutely thank yeah. you so much for that uh, imam jalees and uh, with that uh, we'll close uh, this particular segment as well uh, we do hope that uh, you've enjoyed it uh, do let us know give us feedback you can call us on 0286877878 you can tweet to us at voiceofislam.co uh, dot uk uh, sorry you can tweet us at voice uh, uk and you can uh, go on our website for more information on www.voiceofislam.co.uk uh, so with that uh, we'd like to thank our production for a great production uh, so Pfizer, Malaku, Tafak, uh, Maliha Mahmood, uh, 
for a great production and also to the team of research as well uh Hanna and uh, Hala uh, for their great work as well so thank you for that and to all of our guests as well who came on today um Aslam Daud uh, we had uh, Dr Jill Stein we had uh, Zohra uh Gorashi on um, for the first segment uh, we also listened to Mr Hans uh, Schumann we also had Vanessa King on as well so thank you to all of the guests that joined us today um and also to the uh, to the tech team as well uh, brother shafiq in the background for his great work so thank you to him and uh, lastly to the listeners uh, thank you for for joining the discussion and uh, imam jalis you as well for your enlightening uh, <laughs> yeah. feedback like thank you so much it's, it's an honor to be here with you <laughs> honestly amazing as always <laughs> Uh so until next time uh, it's assalamu alaikum from from us here in the studio of voice of islam <laughs>